From the US to Europe, an international podcast breaking down structured credit one tranche at a time. Welcome to The Last Tranche, Credit Flux's bi-monthly podcast discussing CLOs and all things structured credit. Hello and welcome to The Last Tranche. I'm Hugh Minch, I'm a reporter with Credit Flux, and I'm joined today by Dagmar Michaelchuk and Michael Pang from Tetragon Credit Partners, where they are both principal and portfolio managers on the CLO investment team. Hello to both of you and thank you for joining me. Hi Hugh, thanks for having us. So I wanted to start by asking you about your broad assessment of how uh, the CLO market performed through the crisis last year. Um, so I'm looking at how many uh, CLOs missed an equity payment during 2020. I think we might have slightly different numbers. We put the number of reinvesting CLOs missing at July payments at 14%. Um, I've read your latest analysis piece. You put that number at 13%. Dag, if I could start with you, um, could you tell us about the impact on returns in deals that missed an equity payment uh, during COVID compared to those that didn't? Yes, absolutely. So. Um very often we see equity investors um, take a view that missed equity distributions are not very problematic um, because seal equity typically benefits from an extended period of spread widening that generally occurs after a period of distress. And so uh, we thought it would be interesting to compare the COVID experience to the pandemic. And what we found is that uh, using a conservative estimate, um, a missed uh, quarterly payment every every single quarterly payment that is missed can reduce an uh, equity IR, the ultimate return to the investor, uh, by a range of about 20 basis points to over a point, over 100 basis points. And that depends on the timing uh, and the expected amount of the payment. Um, so the, um, the, the, the conclusion for us was that, uh, in fact, uh, every missed payment is, is quite problematic. And uh, as we'll talk about later, um, not every cycle benefits from an extended period of spread widening um, as cycles and volatility, uh, given the Fed intervention, can become a lot um, more uh, uh, fast healing and, and therefore shorter. I think that's exactly right. The, the study that we recently did, I think, we pulled out a lot of interesting data. And the only um, other thing maybe to add to that is that this the point about how other equity investors we think have been viewing the market um, we think that um, should change given how um, intervention has occurred through this last cycle and how we expect it to continue. But um, that that story about CLOs being self-healing instruments, we think, does hold true so long as you have the correct strategy in, in um, targeting CLO in investments and managers. Yeah, I do recall a split in opinion in the investor community last year about whether you know, it's best to allow for the deal to miss a payment or not. Some were even um, huge proponents of that strategy, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think in some theoretical sense, it does make sense because on the one hand, as long as you're able to reinvest, um, you can offset those missed equity payments. Um, as Dag said, you know, 20 basis points to a point or so of a return for a quarterly missed payment, um, you could overcome that by reinvesting into spreads that are, say, you know, 50 to 200 basis points wider than the pool you initially put on. Um, that investment strategy can work. It, it worked in the, you know, 2006, 2007 vintage that went through the great financial crisis and saw elevated spreads for basically a seven year period after that, which was which was one of the key drivers for returns for that for that vintage. Um, we don't think that really works anymore. 
Um, if you look at how quickly spreads have snapped back um, post COVID, they're essentially back to just a little bit above where they were um, before COVID. They are a little bit wider, but they're nowhere near as wide as um, spreads on loans were post the great financial crisis, where I think a lot of investors think back to when they're when they're trying to construct portfolio strategies. So are you assuming that the actions taken by the Fed this time, obviously it was you know, not just a financial crisis, it's a public health crisis too, but are you assuming that that's going to be a model for you know, future, future downturns that may affect the loan and CLO markets? We think so. Um, we think at least without another regime change um, in the way the Fed's, um, Fed looks at things and is constructed, we think that is a reasonable expectation. I think if you look around, even outside our space, you you hear a lot more now about people taking this view. You know, distressed credit investors outside the CELO space have been, been bemoaning for years Fed interaction uh, intervention, um, mainly because it, it saps their uh, investment universe. Um, so we don't think this is really a groundbreaking or unique um, idea. We, we didn't come up with it ourselves, um, but we do think the implications on CELO equity investing um, we think that is, is a little bit new, and we think that people have not quite yet um, become attuned to that. Um, I think that the conclusion from from, from um, all this analysis is, is important to note, which is that um, in our mind, um, it's very important, uh, therefore, to create equity portfolios that take advantage of the reinvestment period and the optionality. Um, and what that means is that, that they are in a position to be reinvesting uh, for the short periods of time when there is volatility. Uh, and naturally, as, as, as we know in economics, there is no free lunch, there is a trade-off, and the trade-off is, is a higher quality, um, lower spread portfolio. So uh, we're very comfortable with making a trade-off between lower um, IO uh, and benign environments uh, that allows us, we believe, to benefit from volatility and, and price dislocation um, as short as it may be uh, during periods like we saw through the COVID pandemic. And just to get into your portfolio a little bit more, did any of the CLOs in your portfolio miss a payment? No, we're, we're very happy to say that we did not see a single transaction miss a full distribution. And was that, um, was that entirely due to um, you know, the selection of the, the deals, the managers heading into the crisis or... or um, Say, was it uh, discussions with the managers you were investing with as the crisis was ongoing? Um, how did you achieve that? Uh, we do believe that it was manager selection um, and and the positioning that our managers had going into the pandemic. This certainly was um, a very unexpected uh, tail risk event that occurred. Very few uh, people in the financial markets were well prepared for for the extent of, of the pandemic. Um, and so uh, in our minds, it was certainly uh, the selection and the positioning of our managers. And um, as, as we found in our analysis, there's a very high correlation uh, between transactions that shut off distribution distributions and, and the so-called tail risk uh, that they had embedded in their portfolios uh, measured in, in many ways. But one of the indicators that we found useful is, is assets trading um, at distress levels. Um, if, if we had portfolios um, that going into the crisis um, had embedded uh, distress, uh, idiosyncratic or otherwise, um, they had a much um, higher probability of, of facing um, problems, which is, which is intuitive. Last year, during the crisis, when you're in discussions with the managers that you're invested with, could you tell us a little bit about some of the conversations you were having and um, 
you know, what are you imploring those managers to do? Yeah, sure. So I think um, when 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 the dust settled and the reality of uh, and the evolving reality of what the pandemic meant uh, for the economy and the portfolios meant, um, a lot of the focus in our discussions was on on managers essentially we underwriting their portfolios and reassessing their their credit views on the portfolio um, and making decisions on. Um, um, hopefully not cutting positions at, at very distressed prices and, in fact, uh, being very um, proactive about adding risk where they had conviction. So that, um, I would say, was was the bulk of our discussions. Um, another topic uh, that certainly came up later in the cycle was how do we make sure that we are positioned uh, to take advantage of, of the full recovery prospects in certain names. Um, and there we had a number of tools that we created actually during the financial crisis at our disposal to take advantage of, of certain situations um, that many other deals didn't have. Uh, and as I think we'll talk about later, um, the market has evolved and is evolving in a constructive direction. We believe um, adding more and more tools to the toolbox to allow managers to to participate fully in, in, in various uh, types of restructurings. You know, during the crisis, I think Dag hit on all the, the high notes. Um, you know, definitely a lot more focus on at a micro level on credit specific situations, um, but also on a macro level, just portfolio wide, you know, managers were focused um, and communicative with us and, and talking about strategies on um, things like um, triple C exposure um, on a portfolio-wide level, um, distressed on a portfolio-wide level because of the impact on um, over-collateralization tests and the potential for missing aggregate payments, which again, fortunately, we didn't see any. Um, but, um, you know, in summary, it really just became all-encompassing um, in terms of what we were talking about with the managers in the midst of the crisis. And what's your view on, um, you know, making equity contributions into deals that were sort of close to missing over collateralization tests? How do you weigh up that decision? These CLOs have always had the ability um, post great financial crisis to add additional equity capital. And typically you see that um, during, you know, capital restructuring. So, you know, for example, a reset when you may need more capital from the equity holder um, to ensure that the, the CLO debt rates um, upon the new issuance. Um, you have seen in some cases equity investors inject capital um, before a test is actually tripped. Um, and typically what you're weighing at the time is, you know, what is the investment, uh, the reinvestment environment like um, for loans? Because when I'm putting in new equity capital, what I'm doing is adding cushion Via, via loan purchases. Um, and so I definitely want to be able to invest at well below par prices. That's going to add more bang for my buck um, in terms of adding adding OC cushion, um, but also investing into loans that are hopefully money good that would generate high spread. Um, again, you know, in the midst of a crisis, you expect loan spreads to be much wider um, than the initial pool that you put on. And all of that is accretive to equity holders. Um, the flip side of that is, well, what can I do outside of the CLO? You know, you could invest in loans directly on balance sheet or in whatever portfolio that you're managing. You can invest in new CLOs. Um, and so you're, you're essentially just weighing, you know, your reinvestment opportunities outside the CLO against your reinvestment opportunities inside the CLO, knowing that inside the CLO, you're getting the additional benefit of um, additional cushion for the deal. And, and potentially protecting your existing investment. 
Yeah, I, I remember speaking to one manager early last year as the crisis was ongoing who said they were withholding 50% of their equity distribution because um, their investor wanted them to you know, reinvest that by buying ch- uh, cheap assets. Um, Dag, what's, what's your take on that, especially in light of um, how heading into the crisis, you know, a lot of CLOs were already fully invested? Uh, yeah, we generally think that it's a tool that is that is very constructive. Um, we believe in, in having a voice in, in decisions like this. So, um, so long as we are in, in agreement with the manager about the opportunity set, and, and as Mike said, the relative value of, of that opportunity versus what else we could be doing with capital, um, it, it's, it's a very constructive thing to do and to have um, that didn't really exist um for uh, many iterations of, of the CLO structure. Um, in addition to um, to uh, these types of situations that are opportunistic, there are uh, plenty of examples through the last crisis where new capital was needed, um, as I mentioned previously, to really fully take advantage of, of a restructuring. And we saw a lot of press, as I'm sure you'll, you'll recall, um, that highlighted uh, really unfairly limitations in, in CLOs um, participating in, in new money securities that were uh, super priority and, and priming other debt. Um, we we took advantage of, of the flexibility that we created in our documents <clears throat> that is now um, becoming more and more common in CLOs to make sure that we had um, the ability to participate in very attractive new money securities uh, that were becoming super senior to, to existing debt. And uh, certainly very focused on and uh, ensuring that managers not only have the capital to do this, but we're also always thinking of, of the equity investors in their CLOs um, and, and the opportunities that could be missed by not participating uh, versus allocating those very attractively priced securities into other uh, funds that they may be managing away from the CLOs. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to think about the other ways that um, you know, CLO structures and you know the uh, flexibility that managers have have evolved since the crisis. Mike, do you have anything to add on that question? I mean, I think it's a very healthy thing, as Dag said. Um, you know, CLOs as a class um, were not as focused on this, although, as, uh, again, as Dag said, um, there were there were individual CLOs and managers, um, including ourselves, who had been using this type of technology for some time, um, even before the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but we think it's definitely a good thing for the industry to accept this, um, to expand the ability to participate in these types of restructurings. Um, it's protective of the class, obviously, um, and we think it does act as a counterbalance um, that didn't exist for a while against some of the private equity firms' more aggressive behavior. Fast forward to today, um, how does the performance of a manager uh, during the crisis show up in pricing? Is it simply a matter of, you know, they trip more OC tests, therefore they miss more payments, um, they've dropped from tier one to tier two, say, or are there more nuanced considerations that, uh, you know, other factors that are being taken into account? I think it's certainly more nuanced. Um, the the missed equity payments is a big part of it. And um, given how devastating missing equity payments um, is, you certainly see managers who who had a lot of um, problems in that regard in their portfolio really punished by the market. But you know, CLO equity investors um, and, and debt investors, um, they do look through to other metrics. Um, so, for example, volatility around market price um, in the underlying loan portfolios 
often is is another um, driver of how CLO debt prices in new issue structures, um, you know, spread um, on portfolios remains an indicator of stress, we think, and uh, potential stress. Uh, and CLO debt investors do take that into account as well. So it's a bit more nuanced than just um, whether a CLO manager missed equity payments in their deals, although that is obviously that's the, that's the most blunt tool and the most obvious way of differentiating between managers. Yeah, so so certainly um, agree that re-tiering of managers um, happened after the crisis as well as many other prior events. So it's a routine course of, of business in, in our market. Um, but I think it's also important to note that not all of it is, is perfect and efficient uh, and various parts of the capital structure react differently. Um, so, for example, AAA investors may not be all that fussed with necessarily uh, a missed equity distribution and some deleveraging uh, as they prefer uh, a shorter duration investment. So um, the retiering that uh, we're focusing on largely, largely reflects um, uh, mezzanine, although obviously AAA investors um, do care about liquidity and the reputation of, of the manager. So there's a lot of nuance, not only in, in, in the in the factors that drive tiering, but also uh, in, in, in the part of the capital structure that is affected. So I'm going to change the topic now slightly. Um, the CLO market um, cap recently surpassed the trillion dollar milestone. Um, that's based on you know the really sort of unprecedented pace of issuance that's happened already this year. Um, are you expecting this high pace to uh, continue or do you see any factors that are going to act as you know, a bit more of a drag on issuance volumes? Sure. So um, we do think that uh, the market, um, whether it's it's the levered loan market or the CLO market uh, and uh, derivative of the loan market, remain very attractive on a risk-adjusted uh, return basis to a lot of investors globally, um, and therefore we'll see strong demand. Um, we um, are uh, less focused on, um, you know, projecting whether the record issuance of this year will continue. Uh, the biggest uh, drivers of that will obviously be supply of loans at levels that um, allow for the arbitrage to work. And so that constant technical uh, balance between liabilities and assets and, and equity investors, uh, you know, views on on putting on uh, various duration uh, trades uh, is what will drive issuance. But broadly speaking, uh, it, it remains an asset class that continues to generate a very unique uh, return profile, very unique cash flow profile that is very hard to replicate elsewhere for the same amount of risk. And, and therefore, we are very um, constructive on, on volumes and issuance remaining quite healthy near term. So another thing that seems to be coming up more and more is the, um, you know, we reported on some of the rating agencies having to limit the number of deals that cross their desks. I'm also hearing about um, law firms and some banks having to do the same um, given uh, you know both the record supply and also you know, uh, some of these firms have quite a high um, staff turnover um, as investors is this something um, that uh, you've you've been aware of and is it um, is it having an impact on on um, on deal flow on your business we've absolutely been aware of it um, you know one of the things is as uh, control equity investors we do is is continually seek to to um, to optimize the capital structure of these deals. So even once we've invested in a in a portfolio, we're we're constantly looking to refinance, reset um, that sort of thing. And so we're always in the market somewhere. Um, and so 
you know, about a year ago, um, maybe a little bit shorter, we started seeing um, signs that, as you said, rating agencies, law firms, banks themselves um, were, were having human infrastructure issues and, and running out of resources. And so the added element of pipeline management, not just our own pipeline, but the pipeline of the service providers, the agencies, the banks, the law firms, that became a bigger part of how of our planning. Um, it's something that we hadn't really seen before. Um, but what that means is, you know, we're looking out further in terms of planning out transactions um, than we ever have before. Um, and we think it's manageable, um, but you must you have to be much more proactive than you've been in the past. So looking forward, you know, three, four months at a time versus one to two months. Yeah, I think the other element that is that is important to have sort of a, as a risk mitigant to this is is understanding, um, you know, your own uh, strengths and weaknesses as a team and having depth of expertise and relationships. Uh, as Mike noted, uh, we really seek to mo- to maximize and monetize all the optionality that we have as an equity investor. Um, and so we, we feel that it's very important that we execute on refinancings or resets or other types of um, uh, corporate events like amendments uh, on a timely basis. Um, and that means that we're not only planning and strategizing uh, a lot further in advance, but that we're also leaning very heavily um, into our own uh, resources and doing a lot of the legwork and preparation ourselves um, and uh, only relying on external resources um, as absolutely necessary in order to make sure that we maintain a pace that we think is is necessary to to execute for our investors. I'm thinking, is there a sense in which um, equity investors are getting some pickup from this? I'm thinking of supplies limited by the human infrastructure factors. Does that in theory mean that debt investor demand is greater relative to supply than it otherwise would be and that's keeping spreads in what's your what's your experience been uh you know the, it's it's periodic so it's difficult to make that as um that that statement generally across time but it's it's certainly something that has been true during during specific periods of time um uh equity in our minds has been and and should be the constraint factor and, and the pace of issuance uh there um there are a lot of elements that need to come together um to make uh, an equity investment uh, attractive and um, there certainly are environments where debt demand is a lot greater than than production is, and and that's constrained by and should be constrained by equity capital um, uh, availability and capacity. And Mike, how do you see managers working around this issue? Are they having to be a little bit more strategic about the timing of their deal issues? Definitely. Um, you know, managers are essentially they're they're doing the same type of planning that we are. Um, obviously only within their deals though, of course. Um, but you know, in terms of planning out new issue against refinancings, against the resets that they have in their portfolio, they're weighing all of their investor constituents, the needs of their investor constituents against their own needs. And for sure, they are a lot more focused these days on, on sketching out explicitly, um, a schedule, um, of activity for, for their transactions. And I think a natural um, consequence of of, of this um, uh, the heaviness of capital cap, human capital that's required has been a trend that we've seen for many many years. Nothing new, but um, of managers actually adding 
structuring expertise or legal expertise, dedicated resources on on their own end. Uh, not only you know for 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 institutions like ourselves who are primarily investors, but also uh, for managers and issuers. And that's been um, I think a successful tool for managers to make sure that they um, can maintain uh, a pace of of activity and issuance that um, is in line with their strategic objectives. And I think I guess related to this, if I can. Um ask about sort of, uh, the trends you're seeing in the warehouse market um, right now. Does the human infrastructure issue show itself, you know, in terms of you know, how many facilities are open at any given time? Uh, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, warehouse um, uh, creation uh, is, is a much shorter process. There's there's a credit agreement typically, and and uh, first loss taker has to be um, identified, uh, and uh, it's it's a little bit less dependent on on human capital, although certainly a critical component there as well. Um, what we have found to be uh, a concern potentially going through the pandemic was um, uh, a limitation from from Wall Street on on the financing that is provided to, to to CLOs uh, and have been pleasantly surprised by the very constructive view that the street has taken uh, in extending and continuing to extend warehouse capital um, and extending it in a fashion that is, um, you know, more and more desirable to first loss takers, which is not mark to market, um, often with um, extended duration and, and potential to um, uh, ride out a period of volatility and, uh, you know, create multiple transactions through a single warehouse. So uh, warehouses are uh, a, an important critical step to to successful transactions and um, Wall Street's comfort level with um, with warehouses as, as a critical tool to supporting issuance has been constructive, we think. And Mike, just um, related to that, I, I think, um, would you say it's more true to say that the warehouse agreements are sort of more looking like pre-COVID or like the CLO structures themselves? Has there been some development there? We think that they're um, a little less evolved than than the CLO structures themselves. They, they, continue, they do look very similar to pre-COVID warehouses. We have seen um, some potential warehouse providers um, look, looking to looking to um, allow more leverage in these transactions. So actually getting potentially a little bit more aggressive in terms of the terms that they can offer um, versus on the CLO side, I think a lot of what we've talked about um, is looking for additional optionality for, for the equity investor. Um, so on the whole, I'd say that the CLO warehouse market um, um, is is at a healthy stage, um, but not that different from what it was pre-COVID. Um, my final question, just in terms of um, you know, how many of these facilities are open, what do you think this tells us about issuance volumes going forward? Well, we think in the near term, it's it's going to remain healthy. Um, you know, looking at um, the pipeline that we know of um, across the market, um, at least through the fall, um, we think that issuance is likely to remain uh, at elevated levels. Um, again, you know, we don't like making longer term calls on, on issuance volumes. It's very difficult for us um, to do that. Um, but given what we know and given, you know, warehouse numbers that you that you noted um, that are open right now, it does seem like those warehouses will translate into deals in the near term. And that would indicate, um, you know, consistent uh, levels consistent with what we've seen in the last couple quarters. Doug, any final thoughts on warehouses? Important critical uh, evolution and and uh, willingness uh, from Wall Street to support the business, the issuance business, um, 
has taken place. And um, uh, we believe, again, that uh, the evolution of the asset class, the growth of the asset class, the maturation of the asset class um, is giving every every participant in the market confidence um, in understanding that um, risk-reward um, of the asset class. And um, we think that bodes well for, for the future of, of CLOs and, and loans. Well, that wraps everything up quite nicely. Um, Dagmar and Mike, thank you both so much for joining The Last Tranche today. Thank you for listening to The Last Tranche. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Credit Flux and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share our content.